0: A new Mars rover and an asteroid's close call. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show Exploring Space Exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. This summer, NASA will launch a 2,000 pound robot to the surface of Mars. The Perseverance rover will search for ancient signs of life and prep samples of Martian rocks to send back home. For an overview of the mission, we'll speak with Jake Robbins. He's the host of the podcast We Martians and has been following the development of the rover as it readies for its launch from Kennedy Space Center. Then, an asteroid zipped dramatically close to Earth last week. While it wasn't a threat to our planet, it has me wondering how do we detect and protect from future threats? We'll pose that question to our panel of experts on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. But first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. Two NASA astronauts are ready to launch to the International Space Station later this month from Kennedy Space Center. It will be the first human launch from the U.S. since 2011. NASA's Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley are making final preparations to launch to the space station on a SpaceX Dragon capsule, marking the first trip on a commercial spacecraft. Since the end of the space shuttle program in two thousand and eleven NASA has relied on Russia for rides to the station after piloting the final space shuttle missions in two thousand and eleven Hurley worked on the six billion dollar commercial crew program later this month he 'll fly on the spacecraft he helped design
1: it, it has been it 's it's been a long eight and a half or nine years uh, in a lot of ways for uh, the folks that have worked on this program, and uh, and then the fact that we didn't have capability to go to a space station from the United States, and so,
0: you know, once again, I think Bob and I are are, are very uh, humbled to be in this position in order to do that soon. Both Hurley and Bankin are space shuttle veterans. SpaceX and NASA will conduct a flight readiness review May twentieth, a week before the May twenty seventh launch. We'll focus the next few episodes on NASA's commercial crew program and Bob and Doug's mission this month, but stay up to date on the latest other space news. Visit WMFE.org slash space, or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. The Mars Perseverance rover is almost ready to head to the Red Planet. The 2,000-pound robot is set to launch from Cape Canaveral this summer. Its goal, search for signs of life and prepare samples for a future mission. For a breakdown of the science and technology on board and a broad look at the mission plan, we're joined by Jake Robbins. He's the host of the We Martians podcast and has been following the development of the rover and its mission. Jake, thanks for coming back.
2: Hey, thanks for having me back. This is so exciting to be on the show again. It's super exciting
0: to have you on the show, but even more exciting is this mission, right? how How stoked are you for for this summer?
2: This is a it's a big year for Mars, uh, Brendan. I gotta be honest. There's a lot of missions going, but uh, the flagship mission, in more ways than one, is assuredly the Mars 2020 mission. Uh, the Perseverance rover has been, I think, something like seven or eight years in the making. Uh, it's a it's a flagship class mission. It's the biggest style of planetary mission that nasa sends uh you know i think the total cost is something like two and a half billion dollars um it's a follow-on to the highly successful curiosity mission so there's just a lot to be excited about in this uh this rover and i can't wait for it to lift off in july yeah interplanetary missions are always exciting right yes they're they're just the they're the the shiniest bits of what nasa does in my opinion i love the planetary stuff so
0: well, let's get into the nitty gritty. Um, as you mentioned, this was you know almost a decade in the making. You know, Curiosity was our our last rover. Why don't we just send something every year to Mars? Why do we have to wait so long to send these? Uh,
2: aside from the cost of them, <laughs> uh, yeah. What? Well, the cost is certainly certainly part of it. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not cheap to send this stuff. But there's also a um, a scientific part to it, and and we, we may not send rovers every every uh, year or two, but uh, we do send missions pretty frequently. But but one thing with the science is that you want to kind of send a spacecraft there, learn a little bit about Mars, answer some questions, but then also learn some new questions that you now need to ask. And those questions return to the next mission and go to drive that development cycle. So there's kind of a bit of a lag there a lot of the times. So yeah, you know, Curiosity landed in, uh, you know, the early part of last decade, and it's been roving around the surface for six, seven years now. And so we've learned a lot about Mars that we didn't know before. And those Answers have helped drive the development of this rover for sure
0: broadly. What will perseverance? I I have to force myself to say that because I want to say Mars 2020 (laughs) I'm
2: not used to it yet. What's its overall goal? So perseverance has a a number of different kind of top-level mission objectives Um, Kind of very classic along the lines of many of NASA's Mars missions. It wants to understand the past geology of Mars Um, Mars is really special in that If you go back many billions of years, three and a half, four billion years ago, it was a lot like Earth. And then something happened. The paths diverged. Earth went in our direction and, you know, we became us and there was life and all this, you know, beautiful stuff that we see on our planet. And Mars went a different direction and the energy kind of went away, tectonics gone if they were ever there, the planet sort of died. And we don't really understand what the difference was. So that's kind of one big um, uh, objective of this mission. It also wants to understand the climate of Mars. Mars is really special in that it's one of the, the planets in our solar system that has weather, just like on Earth. And we can kind of study that and learn lots of things about how uh, weather works there to learn more about how it works on Earth. Mars 2020 is probably flashiest objective, if you will, is to look for past signs of life. Um, this is probably the one that will make a lot of headlines, uh, but uh, it's going to be retrieving samples from Mars, which is something we've never done before. And we want to kind of find out if, you know, talking about that geology again, if further back in history, if it was a lot like Earth, could there have been life that far back? Because there was on Earth at that time. And so, you know, did any of it survive? Can we see evidence of that life? That's a, an interesting question that Mars 2020 wants to tackle.
0: And before that happens, it has to it has to launch from the Space Coast here in my backyard, um, and then it has to land on the surface. And landing on Mars is pretty unique, right? I remember Curiosity's, uh, what is it, 20 minutes of terror? What, what, what do they call it? <laughs> yeah, uh, seven minutes of terror. Seven minutes 20, of terror,
2: but, okay. <laughs> but uh, any minutes of terror is too many. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not work? an easy easy thing for a spacecraft to get to the surface of Mars. Uh, now, the nice thing about Perseverance is that we, like you said, we get to kind of copy everything we did with Curiosity. So it's there's not anything, um, you know, dramatically new. There's a few new iterations and improvements they've made on the process, but it's uh, overall is more or less the same architecture. But that being said, it's still the craziest way we've ever landed anything anywhere. Um, you know, we lift off from Florida, like you said, on a kind of a standard Atlas rocket. You have six months in space flying around the solar system to go from Earth to Mars, and then it just kind of crashes into the atmosphere. So, um, you know, this rover doesn't fall into a nice graceful orbit and slowly descend to the surface. It literally just hits the planet and uses the atmosphere to slow itself down. Then it's this parachute deployment sequence, and then the spacecraft separates, and there's this whole uh, descent spacecraft with rockets that lower it to the surface. And then if you thought that wasn't crazy enough, then uh, because of the rocket plumes, can damage the spacecraft by kicking up dust and and spreading it around on the surface. They actually keep the descent stage higher up in the air, hovering, and they lower the spacecraft, the rover, on a tether Like a crane a sky crane it's called drop it on the ground and then that descent stage flies off in the distance and crashes never to be seen again So it's a very dramatic sequence, Um, you know We saw this with uh, curiosity and we get to see it again with Mars 2020 I, I can't wait to to participate with it live. It's gonna be so much fun
0: I had you on the the show. I was trying to think back the last time we had you on and one of the episodes You talked about the the landing sites and I think they were down to three obviously now they have a landing site
2: Just bring us up to speed. Where is uh, Perseverance going? Yeah. So Perseverance is landing in a crater called Jezero, Jezero crater. Um, Jezero is really, it's a special, special place. Um, So, you know, you can think of a crater, it's a big crater, we're talking kind of tens of miles across, um, to to give you a kind of a sense of scale. Um, But what's really special about this, because I mean, there's craters all over Mars, is that at some point in that distant past, like I talked about three and a half, four billion years ago, which is like the key, key time period for geology to study. Sometime in that period, this massive, river or channel some kind of flow I don't know if it was a flood or a more constant river but it burst through the side of this crater wall this is the time when Mars was like I said more like earth and there was liquid water on the surface it burst through this crater wall and spread across the crater floor and made this beautiful delta if you think about the Mississippi Delta, and that's a very kind of good use case for what this looks like, um, you have this kind of fan-shaped thing that spreads over the floor. You can see all these channels on it. And when you trace that river back, the watershed that fed this thing is just immense. It covers such a huge land area. So the the end result is that we have all these different parts of Mars, the sediment that has flown into one spot, And we can study it all in situ with one spacecraft. So it's kind of like a treasure trove of rocks and and geology. And then, of course, uh, tracing back to how we talked about this, we'll be searching for signs of life Um, because deltas are formed generally very quickly. And uh, there's actually been a new paper recently that sort of confirmed this, that this Jezero Delta was made pretty fast in geologic uh, timescales. There's a good chance that if there was life or if there was past life, those uh, those signs of life, that evidence could easily be preserved in the layers of this delta. So um, that just makes it doubly more important as to why we want to go and explore there and very exciting.
0: Talk to me a little bit about some of the the hardware that's on the rover that's going to help make these uh, scientific observations. I know on on your podcast, We Martians, you've talked to a lot of the people that are working on on these instruments and are very excited about the data coming back. Uh, what are some things that uh, scientists are using on Perseverance to uh,
2: kind of uncover these, these scientific findings. To be honest, uh, Brandon, we don't have enough time on this show to go over all the instruments. This thing is, is really a it's a, a roving it's a laboratory. <laughs> that's, that's how they think of it. It's a roving laboratory, right? And so um, I think there's something like 20-some cameras on this thing of different types so they can take pictures close up, far away, in color, black and white, and multi-spectral, you know, ultraviolet and infrared, all kinds of different ways that they can look at Mars. Um, you've got some things like uh, there's a, a RIMFAX instrument, which is ground-penetrating radar. Let's some kind of look underground to see what are the layers beneath them. Um, they've got uh, uh, a follow-on to Curiosity's cam cam instrument called SuperCam, which is the the fun one because it shoots lasers at rocks and then measures kind of what the the vapors of these rocks are and what's inside of them. Um, but I think, of course, the the most important instrument on here, and I guess the one that's gonna get the most attention is that it's a, a sample acquisition system. So on the end of kind of a big robotic arm, this rover will will, you know, find good rocks, stick the arm on top of it, drill down into it with a, a coring bit. And extract these sort of, it's kind of like the the size of like a highlighter marker or like a, you know, like a Sharpie, that kind of thing. These kind of tubes of rock, seal them inside canisters and then kind of leave them around the area for eventual retrieval by follow on missions. And so those pristine sealed samples are probably the most uh, uh, critical part of this mission that will deliver Tons and tons of scientific value for for years to come. You glossed
0: over my favorite part of the rover <laughs> I know where you're going with this.
2: Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, there there is a microphone, Brendan. Which, uh, as a radio guy and a podcaster myself, uh, you and I are both very excited about. <laughs> uh,
0: so you mentioned that it, you know, um, perseverance is collecting these these samples and sealing them, and then kind of you know leaving this trail of of samples behind, because um, that's kind of for a, a long term goal of returning these samples, right, that Perseverance is, is, isn't going to do anything with these samples now, right? We, we don't have plans to return them to Earth yet, do we?
2: Yeah, so so Perseverance is technically kind of the, the first of a trio of missions that form NASA's uh, Mars sample return campaign. So this is step one, is send this rover there to kind of extract the samples and seal them for uh, return to Earth. But there's a second mission planned for, um, I think it's tentatively right now it's around 2026 is when they're looking to launch at 2027 and that kind of uh, wherever that launch window lines up i can't quite remember but somewhere in there they want to land a, a platform with a little fetch rover so it's like a, a smaller rover that can move a lot faster it can go kind of zip around pick up these samples bring them back to the platform and on the platform there's a, a small little rocket that will take them up to mars orbit so that's kind of mission two and then mission three is an orbiter, which will uh, travel a similar time scale uh, our time frame, twenty twenty six, twenty twenty seven, meet this kind of sample canister in orbit around Mars, scoop it up inside of its uh, uh, spacecraft body, and then come back to Earth, where we drop into the atmosphere and pick it up in the desert in western United States. So um, it's a whole uh architecture this whole plan with uh, three missions overarching thing it's a, it's a pretty intense endeavor which is why it's a uh, it requires a lot of patience because uh that that landing of those samples uh, is something like 2031 I think we're hoping for this all to get back in time so <laughs> I'll be a lot older than I am now and uh but still excited to see them come back
0: and it sounds complex but when you think about uh the
2: landing uh, campaign of this rover—it's not all that complex, right? <laughs> yeah, there's—I mean, there's some pretty crazy stuff that we've never done there. I mean, we've never—we've never launched a rocket from the surface of Mars, um, so that is sort of a brand new thing that we've never done. Uh, we've never uh, done an orbital rendezvous in Mars orbit, that's a brand new thing. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the little fetch rover is probably totally within our, our reach technologically, the return orbiter, no problem. Um, there's the, the, the sample return at earth is actually really a fascinating story. So, um, if you think about it, these samples have to be preserved astrobiologically. They're very, um, They're very important to keep pristine. You don't want to have Earth bugs getting in there or Mars bugs getting out, if there are any. We don't know. But, you know, just to be safe, we want to kind of seal that up. So you seal these things inside a canister, stick them in a capsule that can go through the atmosphere. But they had to, when they were designing it, they had to figure out how do we build in redundancy in case the parachute breaks? Because... If the parachute breaks, and this thing crashes on Earth, and we spill a bunch of Mars bugs all over Earth, and we've just completely defeated the whole thing that we're trying to prevent. And so they started reinforcing the capsule so that it could survive landing without a parachute. And then they said, well, if it can survive landing without a parachute, let's just get rid of the parachute and save a bunch of mass and money. And so that's the actual plan A is just it goes through the atmosphere and just falls to the ground and survives. So it's a it's a pretty intense uh, reentry period. Nothing like we've done before.
0: <laughs> that's so cool. Just crash yeah. it into the earth. It'll be fine, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: no big deal. So,
0: <laughs> Well, thinking more to the short term, Jake, um, you've had the opportunity to talk to some scientists that will you know, be working on. On uh, either the the rover itself or some of the data coming back, um, what are some what are some questions they're hoping to answer from some of the science coming back from Perseverance?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, there's a a flagship mission has a lot of scientists on it, and so that the that question is has a very broad answer depending on who you answer, uh, ask, you know, which instrument they're working on or which team or which country they're coming from, uh, they'll definitely give you a, a different answer. But I think a, a lot of it, like the geology is probably the most um, it's the, the area of science that we can return the most amount of data quickly uh, with this rover. The samples will take a while to get back. Uh, the weather data will be in, important, but, uh, you know, it's it's one of many weather stations on Mars and it kind of just adds to a growing collection of data. But the, the geology in Jezero, I think, is probably where a lot of those early questions will will be answered. Um, like I said, the, the watershed that feeds this has so many different uh, rock types in it that We can learn quite a bit. We're going to have to really flex our muscles in terms of deciphering that mess. I mean, if you think about if you have this river feeding a delta from all over the place, how do you tell where that silt and that mud and those rocks came from? That's a, that's a tricky thing to figure out. And so um, all the sedimentary geologists are really going to have to, um, you know, be really, really good at their job to figure that one out there. Um, but there's there's lots to answer about just what was it like in the, in the past of Mars? Um, one of the, the, the biggest questions that we still struggle with is was Mars's past kind of this warm and wet environment, you know, like was this river just something that just existed on the surface in this nice lush environment that we can imagine, or was it more cold and icy? And this might've been like a, a temporary glacial melt and normally it's like this cold, dry Antarctic environment and every once in a while with a hot summer you have a, a you know, a, a dam burst and all this water pours out and that's, you know, it's more of a catastrophic event you might call that. So that's kind of the the big question. A lot of the the models kind of conflict you know that says we see evidence on the surface that says no that has to be warm and wet look at all these rivers that used to be here but then the the climate models and and, you know factoring in the energy from the sun and and where mars was at that time it says hey no it could never have been warm enough to do that so how do we reconcile those is a huge huge question that i think uh, this will go uh, along with all of its predecessor missions will help try and uh, understand
0: before I let you go, um I think I might know where this answer is going to take you um and, and for folks who listen to your podcast would know this as well, but what are you most excited about this mission? What do you want to find out about Mars?
2: Wow, that's a yeah, that's a big question. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of those the stuff we've talked about is certainly high on my list. Um the the samples are probably what I'm most excited about. I uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I went to um, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, which is a big event in in uh, Texas every year for planetary scientists. And it was celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo and talking about the the moon samples that we got back from those missions. So all the astronauts kind of brought back bags and bags of rocks from the moon. And we are still studying those and learning new things. Fifty years later. Um, The samples from Apollo are continuing to deliver revelations. You know, they brought so much back knowing that they would be able to invent new instruments later to study them. That's kind of the time scale you think about with these samples. So when I think about Mars samples, um, I... You know, we don't even know what we're going to learn from those things, but it will be big. So that's what I'm—I'm I'm probably most excited about. It's just the getting a real piece of Mars back to Earth that is untouched, pristine, and that we can study with all the state-of-the-art instruments across the world with the best minds. It is just the—the uh, the horizon for for new knowledge there is just so great that I—I I, can't—I can't sleep sometimes thinking about it, Brendan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been speaking with Jake Robbins. He's the host of the We Martians podcast which should be a prerequisite listening for uh, this mission. So go back and listen and learn all you can about Mars before this summer. Uh, Jake also co-hosts the podcast Off Nominal. Uh, Jake, thanks so much for speaking with us.
2: Oh, this has been really great. Thanks for having me.
0: Still to come, protecting the planet from dangerous asteroids and a close call last week. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Last week, an asteroid zipped dramatically close to Earth. While it wasn't a threat to our planet, it has me wondering, how do we detect and protect from future threats? We'll pose that question to our panel of experts, UCF's Jim Cooney, Addy Dove, and Josh Caldwell, on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. Addy Dove kicks off the conversation describing just how close the asteroid came to Earth. Uh, It
3: passed by about 16 times further away than the distance from the Earth to the moon. So a lot of times when we hear these phrase close approach uh, in in popular press when these things are coming by, it's like that is relatively close for space things, right? That's still way closer than most other things are in space. Um, But it's not like it's... Coming it's whizzing by and stripping a little bit of our atmosphere or something like that.
0: Well, it doesn't help that NASA calls them potentially hazardous asteroids, right well, How does it get that that designation and why <laughs> tell me why I shouldn't be worried <laughs> well, <laughs> with a name like no, that
1: <laughs> doesn't mean It doesn't mean necessarily this time potentially hazardous. It just means at some point in the future it may pose a risk to earth. Uh, I think for this one we've worked out its orbit pretty confidently for at least the next couple hundred years. But in the hundreds or thousands of years after that, its orbit may be a problem. Yeah, how there are we... all
4: sorts of little forces that can push these things around uh, by tiny amounts. So potentially hazardous means the orbit of that object crosses the orbit of the Earth. But then there's the issue of are they at the same place at the same time and how close are they really crossing? The the moon is about 30 Earths away from the moon, just to give another sort of sense of scale for how big a miss that was. You know, even if it's as far away from the Earth as the moon
0: is, you're missing the spot of the Earth by a lot. I'm still concerned about this thing is what I'm getting at. How How do we know for sure? <laughs>
3: so, so this asteroid is one that we've actually been observing for a while. So its name is like 1998, something, something, something. Uh, and the 1998 refers to when it was first observed, basically. Um, so we've actually had observations of this object since 1998. So we have pretty precise, as Jim mentioned, we have pretty precise tracking of it. So we know pretty well what its orbits are. So as Josh mentioned, there are lots of little perturbations to its orbit that changed over time, but there's not anything really drastically that's going to it's going to take a right turn and and zoom into the earth for some reason the the little perturbations are it makes it a slightly smaller orbit a slightly bigger orbit a little bit more or less eccentric right so a more oval versus a circular orbit those kinds of things happen due to radiation from the sun or um other forces the like gra- other weird gravitational forces that come from interactions with the earth and the moon and other planetary bodies um, so, but those are all relatively predictable. And as we're tracking these objects, we can see how their um, how their paths change and really get good, precise predictions for the future pretty far out.
0: We're safe for now. What kind of, uh, plans or, or, uh, research is in place to track all these? Cause, uh, Addy, you mentioned we've been tracking this one since 1998. There's gotta be mm-hmm. a lot more out there. Uh, who's responsible for making sure, uh, one of these bad boys doesn't crash into us?
4: Well, we all are, uh, and so fortunately, NASA and other national agencies are, uh, have set up survey programs with uh, large telescopes that are looking at big chunks of the sky all the time with automated systems to identify all of these objects, and, uh, and we've discovered a, a very large number of these so-called potentially hazardous objects in the last 10 or 20 years using these big survey telescopes. And so, uh, you know, the goal is to discover the vast majority of objects small, uh, larger than a certain size Uh, that are potentially hazardous, say, within the next 50 or 100 years. And then you have to, but because the orbits change, you have to carry on those surveys for a long period of time.
3: Yeah, the name of the the NASA uh, office that organizes all of this stuff is the NASA Planetary Defense Coordination Office, which is a pretty great name. Uh, One of the best offices we used to work at at NASA down at Ellington in um, Houston was called the the Reduced Gravity Office, and you just kind of always imagine walking in and starting to float. Um, right. <laughs> but the Planetary Defense Coordination Office is a pretty great title. And they really um, are have been it's a, it's a relatively recent organization within NASA that um, but is really focused on tracking all of these things. And they're involved in things like the DART mission that will investigate how we can perturb the orbit uh, with spacecraft of an asteroid. So there's a lot of um, both monitoring, but also some active ideas about how we, if one of these things is actually maybe going to approach us in the future and be more dangerous, what are some ways we can mitigate that?
0: The DART mission is uh, very interesting, right? They've they've, uh, found an asteroid that's that's pretty close by, and they're going to fire a spacecraft at it, right?
3: Basically, yeah. The asteroid is Didymos, and it has a moon that's called (laughs) Didymoon. And so the mission is actually going to try to, I think it's actually going to try to impact on Didymoon, Moon and perturb its orbit to sit because it's the smaller object. So it's easier, right? If you hit a small thing, it's easier to change it. And so they're going to try to perturb that and see what happens in its orbit around the bigger body. One Just of think-
4: the keys to, to protecting ourselves from these things is like, get to them as early as possible. So the earliest that you identify that it's on a potentially uh, collisional course with the earth, it takes a very, very small amount of change to its orbit to give you a safe miss. But the closer it gets, the harder it gets to, to push it off. But that's why the telescopic surveys and the detection is so important and determining those orbits early is really important. And if you get them early enough, you can actually potentially deflect them just by doing something like changing the color of it by splattering one side with some dark or bright material, which causes light to be strong enough to uh, change its orbit by enough of a small amount early on so it's safe.
1: And to put your mind at ease there, Brendan, I, I know that you worry about these things. It keeps you up at <laughs> night. Uh, but Everything though, you say keeps like, me up at night, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> even though Josh, uh, Josh indicated that we've found lots and lots of these things, we know of many, many, many objects that cross Earth's orbit or come very close. None of them are thought to be a, a danger in the near future, right? We've mapped out all of the ones that we found. We've mapped out their orbits and they're not going to hit us anytime too soon. They're still minor worries about things we haven't found or things that are coming from the deep outer solar system that might just creep up on us but for the most part uh it's something we should be thinking about but it's not something it's not like we found one that's going to hit and we're just not telling you or something
0: that is the most reassuring thing you have said in the six plus (laughs) months we have been doing this segment together so i I do appreciate (laughs) it, jim you're welcome (laughs) That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Show your support for this show and the local journalism you rely on by making a donation at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.